This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. The United Kingdom is a great country. Never, never been a good bet to bet against America. Hi, hello, and welcome. This is Mid Atlantic, the podcast where we explore the complexities of international relations and current events. I'm your host, Royfield Brown, who sat in Birmingham in England. Today, we're diving into a critical and timely issue with a very special guest. Joining us is Rami Kahuri, a renowned figure in the fields of journalism, academia, and international policy. Kahuri serves as the director of global engagement at the American University of Beirut. His voice resonates globally as an internationally syndicated political columnist and author and is recognised for his peace-promoting efforts, notably receiving the Pax Christie International Peace Award in 2006. Today, our conversation with Rami Kahuri takes on an urgent and poignant subject, the ongoing Israeli invasion of Gaza and the dire plight of the Palestinian people. We're addressing a particular alarming prospect, Gaza being on the brink of famine. A UN-affiliated panel has issued a stark warning about the imminent threat of famine in Gaza, a crisis exacerbated by logistical challenges and the lengthy inspections that are severely hindering the delivery of much-needed aid. Kaurist's distinguished academic career with fellowships at Harvard, Princeton, Stanford and more positioned him as a uniquely qualified individual to provide deep insights into this complex issue. And just quickly, because I'm not looking at my notes, I also want to really speak to Uri about the future when the guns go silent. Rami Kahuri, welcome to Mid-Atlantic. How are you today? I'm good. Just to correct the pronunciation, my name is Kuri or Huri. Thank you for pulling me up, sir. First off, tell us about where you were when the news of the attack, the Hamas's attack on southern Israel happened. Where were you? What were your initial thoughts, sir? I was in Cambridge, in Boston, near Boston. We heard the news kind of the afternoon, I guess it was, or no, in the morning here. And it wasn't clear at first, and then it became clear that it was really a very significant uh, development. In hindsight, should we have been shocked, surprised, that Hamas launched an attack on Israel, with hindsight? If somebody follows the Palestine-Israel or the Arab-Israeli conflict seriously, no, uh, they shouldn't be surprised at all. This has been a conflict that's gone on for actually about 100 years or so. It was in 1923 that the League of Mandate, the League of Nations gave a mandate to Great Britain to be in charge of the areas that were taken over from the Ottoman Empire and Palestine, Western Asia, really, the Levant, which became Lebanon, Syria, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Iraq. Uh, but uh, Great Britain and France uh, took charge of those uh, areas in 1923, and now it's 101 years, uh, and this is still going on. So these kinds of actions, uh, whether they're individual attacks or official state attacks or done by non-state actors like uh, Hamas, small groups of guerrilla fighters, whatever it may be, freelance terrorists, uh, Jewish settlers in the West Bank and on both sides, you have all kinds of actions, and they're part of a war. So the first thing you have to grasp if you're looking at this conflict is that it's a war, and there's two parties. They've been fighting each other for about 100 years. So it's not really very useful or very accurate for anybody to say, let's say October 7 is when all this started, or it was the Oslo talks, or 1948. All of these are important milestones, or 1967. But the overall conflict has been going on, and it's a struggle between two people, the Jewish people who, became, who then created the State of Israel, and the, or at least the Zionist movement within the Jewish people, which was a very small movement when it started, 
they came to create a state, and they did, and Israel was created. And on the other hand, there's the people of Palestine, who, who never had their own state, as no, none of the people that Iraq or Jordan or Lebanon, none of these people had states, until statehood started to happen in the first third of the 20th century. And the Palestinians were unable to confront the Zionists and their Western supporters, and Israel was created. The Palestinian population was disenfranchised, some of it under Israeli occupation, some of it expelled, some of it fled. And the Palestinians ever since have been working and fighting for their rights to have a state in, the, in, in their homeland. So that's the, the, this battle has been going on all this time. It changed and evolves. There's different actors, different conditions. But the fundamental struggle is between the Palestinian and the Jewish, Zionist, Israeli people for control of this land or for their share of this land in which they can set up their own state without controlling the thing. It's interesting you say that this conflict is between the... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Palestinian people and the Israeli people. Uh, if you look at the history of the conflicts, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's an important place for us at least to start to understand where we get to from, let's say, 1947 and the UN partition through to October the 7th in 2023. It's, it's important for us to at least frame it before we move on to the current conflict. One of the things that does mark the conflict, this was truly an Arab on Israeli conflict historically. And then as of, let's say, the Six Days War, um, fundamentally various Arab parties have dropped out. The fact that now this does at least appear to be a Palestinian and Israeli conflict, how does that kind of shape the aspirations for, and, and also the means that the Palestinian people have to try and affect their own recognized state? Conditions keep evolving, and the actors keep evolving, and their capabilities keep evolving. So the Palestinian people, when this conflict started, if you could say night in the 1920s, 1930s, became serious, you didn't have, the Palestinians did not have the capabilities, military, technological. They didn't have the diplomatic connections in Europe and North America, which the Zionists did. They, most of them came from Europe. They're Europeans, the European Jews. Uh, they didn't have the uh, organizational capabilities. There wasn't a coherent national um, movement. Uh, so they, they, the Palestinians uh, were very weak, and they couldn't really defend themselves against both the British colonizing or the British authority in charge of the area and the very well-organized armed Zionist military groups. And therefore, Israel was created, the Palestinians were defeated, and many of them expelled. And this has been the situation ever since. There has not been a coherent Palestinian state or uh, really leadership uh, that was able to uh, harness all the incredible support that the Palestine cause has all around the world, not just the Arab world, but you see it now in the last month or two, these amazing, massive demonstrations, including in London, there were two, three hundred thousand people, Indonesia, and anywhere you go, 
in the world, all over the world, you have these things. Every time Biden gives a speech now, and the U.S. he's interrupted with heckles, say genocide, Joe ceasefire now. So there's tremendous support for the Palestine issue. There always has been, but there has never been a Palestinian government that is capable to harness it and engage the Israelis in a serious diplomatic discussion, negotiation, to try to resolve the issue. We could not meet the Israelis on the battlefield because we didn't have the capabilities. Now, this is where Hamas becomes significant. Hamas has developed since the late 1980s, and it has become, over time, a very proficient military force. And we've seen its abilities, whether you agree with what they do or you don't, you have to admire what they've been able to do, both to keep resisting against Israel over all these years, to carry out the attack on October 7. Again, I'm not saying it's great. I'm not saying you should judge it as good, but just recognize what the, the capabilities they had developed to be able to do that was quite significant and then to protect themselves uh, in their underground system in other ways in the last four months almost. Uh, So this is what's important today, that there is this new capability that Hamas has, and it is shaking up the diplomatic landscape in a very significant way. Mr. Kahori, I'm going to quickly stop you, because I, I think what you said is something which is actually quite profound, but I actually disagree. Number one, and we had to be incredibly careful, the fact that such an audacious attack invasion could happen is literally incredible considering the economic blockade and the level of surveillance which the Israeli state has on Gaza. So it shows you there's been a shocking breakdown of intelligence in Shin Bet. The fact that that could even happen on such a coordinated scale that's one that i don't think anybody can deny that but i but where i disagree with you is when you said that has garnered international support i think what has garnered international support is the hopelessness of the palestinian people who are trapped between a lack of having a viable state and then with what appears to be the disproportionate Israeli response to that attack. I think that's the reason why international public opinion is swinging against Israel. And historically, there has been, at least in left-leaning politics in Europe, sympathy for the Palestinian cause. That goes back decades. And, And it's not by accident that South Africa led the charge to the ICJ because the ANC and the PLO were two liberation movements in the 1960s. So I disagree with you that it's any lauding of Hamas per se, but it's that but people recognize that the Palestinian people are in the middle of what is potentially a, a genocide. And, and that's there's legal scholars are saying that and the hopelessness of their position. Right. Yeah, you're right. I'm, uh, I'm not saying that there's global support for the attack on October 7th. There's global support for the Palestinian people who are struggling for their rights and to live in their land peacefully with the state of Israel, or they want to make one state or whatever they want. Uh, that's where the support is, is massive. The attack itself is controversial. The Israelis and the Americans and many people in the West call it terrorism. Other people call it legitimate resistance. It's a huge debate, which is not easy to resolve because these technical terms are very tricky. But certainly... Many Palestinians are not happy with attacks against civilians. The general dividing line in the Arab world, as I see it, I've lived there most of my life, is that people say that if you attack an Israeli settlement with soldiers in it or an Israeli army camp, that's perfectly legitimate because this is soldier against soldier. But if you go and bomb a bus in Tel Aviv or blow up a pizza parlor or kill people who are dancing, that's not really resistance. That's closer to terrorism. So this, I don't want to get into that argument because it will never end. And I think what we have to do to, if anybody seriously wants to assess this conflict, they have to apply the same standard of morality and law and decency to both sides. So I, I do a lot of lecturing and speaking, and people always ask me, will you condemn the, the October 7 attack? Will you condemn it as terrorism? 
I will say I will condemn all attacks against civilians by all sides as terrorism. But if you ask me to just take one attack and ignore the others, I say no, I won't do that. But I don't think that's very helpful. It's not very fair, and it doesn't particularly resolve anything. What we want to do is stop all the terrorism, stop the occupation, stop the siege, stop the subjugation, and stop the cruelty. So that's why I keep saying that unless we grasp the nature of this war that has two parties, and now there's other parties, of course, there's foreign parties who assist them, but the Palestinians and the Israelis are at war. And any assessment of anything they do it has to be uh, done uh, in the basis that looks at them both, because that's the only way that we're ever going to try to find a way to resolve this conflict. If the actions of both sides are judged uh, fairly and equally, same standards, we can then start moving to the situation, as happened in South Africa or Northern Ireland or other places where tough conflicts were resolved politically after a lot of warfare. And there's other areas where they haven't been resolved, Cyprus, for instance, and other conflicts. So that, that that's my point. I've, I always think that the, the example of Northern Ireland is probably the, one of the closest in terms of the, the two communities and the seemingly intractable nature of the conflict terrorists on both sides, freedom fighters on both sides, etc. And then the position of the British government then actually in treating with the IRA. Implacable terrorists. And they explain to people all the time that by the end of the 1990s, by the middle of the 1990s, not even the end, both sides realised that this was going to be an intractable conflict and they had to sit down and talk to each other. But what I want to do is move our conversation on just a little. The ICJ's historic ruling on Gaza kind of introduces this recent development of the International Court of Justice claiming jurisdiction over accusations of Israeli actions within Gaza, marking a significant legal milestone. Where does that politically move the, the needle in that it appears that Israel does have a case to answer in terms of its in terms of genocide and the disproportionate response and lack of care for civilians. Where does that move the needle in this conflict and then in terms of international perception? Yeah, so the International Court of Justice decision or interim or provisional, whatever it's called, is very significant because this is the first time in the history of this entire conflict that the two sides were able to present their case in public, at a legitimate venue, the uh, the siege, the court, um, and they were judged by a panel of expert, impartial, honest people, men and women. The core issues of the conflict, the occupation, the terrorism, the subjugation, the annexation, the settler colonial expansion, all of the terrible things on, that have happened, and you can accuse both sides as much as anybody wants to, were put out, uh, put on the table for the first time. And this is really important here, which is that there wasn't really much opportunity for either side to try to use its behind-the-scenes and smoke-filled rooms, behind-closed doors, lobbying, influencing, threatening, cajoling, enticing, uh, people, which is, has happened over the whole last hundred years. So the decisions were, were made out in the open according to a law standard that is internationally accepted. That's what's significant. Out of the finding was what it was, which is that there's very plausible reason to uh, see uh, Israelis involved in a genocide or what could become a genocide. However you want to phrase it, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing. That uh, This is the things that have been happening. And especially if you see the provisional measures that the court issued, it just said stop the killings, stop the starvation, provide humanitarian aid, etc. It went through everything that the Palestinians accused the Israelis of. The court said these things should be stopped. The court recognizes Israel has a right to defend itself. The Palestinians have a right to defend themselves. Everybody does. But there are rules of law, and they need to be rules of war, 
and they need to be clear to what the Israelis were doing went way beyond any kind of reasonable response. Starving people and and depriving them of, of water and food, and now there's all kinds of sick and illnesses that are spreading because of the lack of sanitation, medicating, bombing the hospitals, destroying the whole culture of the place, the schools, the mosques, the churches. What Israel has done is really unprecedented, in, in I think, in modern history, modern warfare. And it will be revealed once the guns fall silent. The, everything is documented. Everything is on the video. The pe- people will document this for what it is, which is a very severe, cruel, almost barbaric episode, which many supportive of Israel will tell you, look, they had no choice. They had to do this. The arguments on both sides will go on forever. But the fact that it went to this court and the court took these decisions is really significant. By the way, there's another court decision that was just made yesterday in California where some Palestinians with the Center for Constitutional Rights in the U.S., which is a very respected legal group that fights for justice, they took the President of the United States, Secretary of State, and Secretary of Defense, they charged them in a federal court in California with complicity with genocide or not adhering to their obligation under international law to prevent a genocide because the U.S. was sending all these weapons to Israel nonstop. And the vetoing anything in the Security Council that would create a ceasefire. There was a case in the U.S., and it was heard about three, two weeks ago, and the judge made his decision yesterday, and it was really quite striking. Now, the judge said, I don't have the authority to tell the president to stop doing what he's doing. He says that is a jurisdictional issue which has to be resolved on the executive branch. But what he did say, which was astounding, a federal judge, said that what the the case presented certainly seems to show plausible implementation of genocidal actions. That's extraordinary when the federal judge in the U.S. says this. This is unprecedented. So one of the things that is going on now is Palestinians all over the world finally are realizing that they have opportunities to use the established systems of governance, international Agencies, the UN, the rule of law, courts, media, whatever they, if they work well and organize and work well, they can present their case better to the world and get a better response uh, from the world. It's not going to happen quickly. The US is not suddenly going to turn against uh, Israel and say, look, we're going to pull our money and our guns away. That's not going to happen. But what is happening which is quite extraordinary. Literally, these few days, today, the U.S. announced the State Department uh, or the President, uh, Biden, announced that he signed an executive order that would sanction and punish any Israelis who carried out extrajudicial attacks against Palestinians in the West Bank. And this is really quite significant. It's never happened before. The other thing that's happened is that the State Department, Blinken, in Washington today revealed that he has asked for a review of how could the U.S. recognize a Palestinian state this week or next week. But now, this is also unprecedented. Most people assume that if a Palestinian state happens, it'll then be recognized. But Blinken is looking at all the U.S. It's all of this, uh, and there's other things, too, that, that are going on. But you, you are... A hundred percent correct. And I did want to come to that, but you've somewhat foreshadowed another one of my future questions, but I'll bring it to the fore now. Lord Cameron, the UK's foreign secretary, has said that the UK government is looking into recognizing a Palestinian state. And to go back to one of the points which you made a couple of minutes ago, that I think we've put a ban on issuing visas to anybody implicated in Israeli terror on the West Bank as well. It does look like Western governments are inching towards and applying pressure on the Israeli state that the defeat of Hamas doesn't mean that the Palestinian people can just live without democratic rights 
and can't have their own state, doesn't it? What we do, it, it looks like the West is slowly putting some incremental pressure on Israel, looking at a post-conflict solution. That's happening, and it's happening partly, again, as we speak, in Paris, the U.S. CIA director, the head of Israeli intelligence, the Qatari foreign minister and an Egyptian official are meeting to thrash out a another round of a long-term truce or ceasefire in Gaza where both sides would stop uh, military action, and then they start exchanging the hostages for prisoners in Israeli jails over a period of, they're talking now about six weeks or something, six or eight weeks, and then and aid would flow normally, people can come and go wherever they want in Gaza, and then this would, hopefully, they their plan is to do this and then move on to the next stage immediately, which is a negotiation for a permanent peace settlement between Palestine and Israel and other Arab countries, because Syria and Lebanon have occupied lands too. And so th there's this extraordinary, rather dramatic moves that are happening literally now, and they're only happening because of what Hamas did. And Hamas, and again, I'm not saying I support everything Hamas does, the point of Hamas and what it represents, like Hezbollah, like Ansarullah, the Houthis in Yemen and others, these resistance movements that came into being in the last 30, 40 years, really, that Hezbollah's from the early 80s, Hamas from the late 80s, these movements, they call themselves resistance movements. And resistance is what they do. Unlike the existing Arab governments or Arafat when he was there, they don't just go and plead for please because... That's gotten us nowhere with the Israelis. So these guys, they say, look, we have to fight for our rights. And they're doing that. We'd, it's better not to fight. It's better to negotiate. But if the Israelis and the Americans are not going to negotiate seriously, honestly, people are left with no choice. And this is human nature. It has nothing to do with Palestine or Israel. This is human nature anywhere around the world where we have an oppressive system. The people being oppressed are going to resist. And the ability of Hamas to do what it did has triggered this, all these events, these ideas, and and the more, more will come along too as we continue down the road. So the best we can hope for is that people would harness the moment and their energies, and to move into a serious negotiating process that recognizes the rights of Israelis and Palestinians to have their own state and live in peace, guaranteed, but they have to have equal rights. So this is one of the critical things. So we, we, we don't want to set up another colonial Bantustan system. Uh, the Israelis and the Americans, when they talk of states, they, they say states for, a state for the Palestinians, but the Israelis have security rights to control the borders, or the Israelis have security rights for this. We're done with that. The Arab world is done with that. And they're saying, look, we will accept and live with the Israelis, which we've been saying, by the way, since 2002, they are a peace plan. We will live with them, total security, total peace, total recognition, open borders, trade, everything, but only when Palestinians have the same rights as the Israelis. The Israelis are not prepared to do that yet. The Americans are inching towards that arena. They're slowly recognizing that they cannot be colonial oppressors as they are now, and claim that they're working for democracy and human rights and peace. So this is the very significant for the British government, which is if there's a prize for colonial cruelty and oppression and ravages around the world, the British will probably get that prize because of what <laughs> happened under British colonialism. Listen, absolutely. Britain does get the Olympic gold in that. What I want to do, just very quickly, I just want to go come on to Gaza being on the brink of famine and what we can do. And then I want to end our bit of a, a conversation looking at what happens when the guns stop. Gaza is on the brink of famine. There is a humanitarian crisis. And some of the facts and figures are just utterly stunning for me. So if we look at Rafa, Rafa is a city of a quarter of a million people and it's right on the border, southern Gaza, with Egypt. Currently, over half the population of the whole of Gaza, 1.3 million people are now in Rafa without adequate food and water. 
And, and to the point of which you're saying about Western governments inching towards applying pressure on Israel, it's because of situations like this. Um, but we also have UNRWA also being discredited and also being defunded. So can you just speak to the plight of the Palestinian people, the plight of over half the population of the whole of Gaza, homeless and displaced within Rafa, a place which is only built for a quarter of a million people, and just the sheer devastation which has actually happened in Gaza. 70% of all buildings have some level of destruction. 90% of the population is displaced. What can we do? What should we do to help alleviate this humanitarian crisis where it looks like the next phase is actual starvation? I would first say that what we have to be honest and recognize is that while the first, say, two months, two and a half months of the Israeli assault on Gaza were taking place, most of the world, most of the Western world, was not openly saying this has to stop. They were saying, oh, try to kill a few less civilians or whatever. There, there was no serious movement to stop the Israelis. Because the anger of many people against what happened on October 7 was so strong, and the Israelis were masters at showing the world that they had been treated like animals in the Holocaust, and now they tell the world, this is like that. This is the most people killed in one day since the Holocaust. So the Israelis are very good political public relations in projecting their case, even though they exaggerate and they lie and they distort, but they're very good at that. And therefore, most of the world was not moved to do anything for the first two months. It was only when it became clear that what was going on was actually a genocide, that the Israelis wanted to remove the people out of Gaza, try to get them into the Sinai. They couldn't get do that because the Egyptians refused. The Americans and Israelis tried to convince them, buy them off, which is what they usually do with non-white people in the South. They give them some money or give them a car, and, and they get what they want. But this just didn't happen. And then when this got to the International Court of Justice, and it looked like Israel was going to be held out in front of the world as a country practicing genocide, then people started getting scared. But the most important thing, I think, in the American case, England, I'm not there, so I can't tell, but in the American case, the, the main driver of the beginning of a change in the Biden position is they were afraid of losing the election in November because Arab Americans, Muslim Americans, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, people of color, and, and other, they were all absolutely appalled by the American position, the, the cruelty, the, the insensitivity, the barbarism of it. And it was all they could see it all on TV. You could see children being, their legs being amputated with no anesthesia. Unbelievable stuff, unbelievable scenes uh, of, of killing and inhumanity practiced by Israelis, by Jews. And this, when the U.S. refused to do a ceasefire, vetoed a ceasefire at the U.N., then American groups who were linked with the Global South started to say, look, we're not going to vote for Biden. We're going to vote for Mickey Mouse before we vote for Biden. And this scared the daylights out of Biden. And that's when people started moving, when they saw that their domestic political fortunes were going to get hurt. And the and they were also being charged with complicity in genocide, that they were liable because of their support for the Israeli government's actions. So things did start to change, and we're in right in this process. Literally, this week is, is the most dramatic week that we've seen where changes are happening. The Israelis, of course, released that dossier, so-called dossier, about 12 people out of 12,000 Gazans who work for UNRWA, uh, being part of Hamas or some being involved, they released that on the same day as the ICJ, the court, clearly wanting to divert attention from it. And now, in the last three, four days, it's become clear that much of the information in that dossier is probably not accurate. It's two or three of the people have died already, whatever, that, can't, so it can't be verified. The UN has looked into it and, and is going to come up with any kind of evidence they can. And if there are people, if there were a few individuals in UNRWA, employees, school teachers, drivers, whatever, who were somehow linked to Hamas, they should be, they're fired already, and, they, and maybe they'll be prosecuted. 
But you can't take a, a whole... In the United States, you had American police and officials who were involved in the assault on the Congress in January 2000-whatever it was, 2000... Uh, so what do you do with them? So if you find 10 American officials who were involved in this terror attack against the Congress, this insurrection... Do you then say the whole American government is complicit? It's not. You, so, so the Israelis clearly were very good, again, at manipulating um, knowledge, information, some of it inaccurately, and they're desperately trying to reduce the pressure on them because all over the world now, the U.S. and Israel are being singled out in a corner as killers, baby killers, whatever you want to call them. They're not comfortable with this. And that's why I think we're seeing extraordinary change. But we should really capitalize on that to just get back to the main point of how do we achieve peace by achieving justice for both sides. That's the critical equation that we have to look at. There is no two ways about it that whether it's a Democratic Party in the US or let's say the Labour Party in the UK, there is there is internal pressure with some of their key constituencies who are, and, it, and it's not binary, and I say this to people all the time, you can be for a Palestinian state. That doesn't mean that uh, you're denying Israel the right to exist. Israel fought, has fought its wars, and Israel as a state isn't going anywhere, but neither are the Palestinian people, and they need to be able to have their own state. It's not binary, and so many people in, in, in the UK are making that case and he's putting a lot of pressure on Keir Starmer, the Labour, the leader of the Labour Party. But there's also a lot of understanding that this is not a binary issue. You're pro-Palestinian, which means you're anti-Israeli per se, in that the UK Foreign Affairs Select Committee, their chairman, is very pro a Palestinian state. But again, says but that doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have the right to exist. What I want to do now is just quickly pivot onto talking about how a Palestinian state would actually look in, in real terms. I know that there are a lot of people in the audience who do have questions. Maybe we'll just spend five minutes on this. I know, Andrea, you said that uh, you wanted to ask a question. I believe, Professor Corey, that, that the needle has moved decisively in terms of the world's public opinion in terms of understanding, at least having some level of empathy with the continued hopelessness of the Palestinian people. And I genuinely believe that the Israeli state will only have true security when it has a just and equitable peace with the Palestinian people. The very fact that American and British governments and other Western governments are, are not just saying that, let's say in the West Bank, there are illegal settlements, but actually enforcing that by giving travel bans. It, this is the lightest of light things, but they're, they're going on a journey. They're going on a journey. Whether it's in, let's say, five years, ten years, um, if there is a Palestinian state, what would that state, is it going to be Gaza and all of the West Bank with its capital being East Jerusalem, Give us the outlines of what a Palestinian state would actually truly look like, a truly sovereign, independent Palestinian state. They would have to include, essentially, territory that is equivalent to what was in, in the hands of Palestinians. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Administered by Jordan and Egypt before 67, the West Bank and Gaza, that there would be 22% of the land of historic Palestine has to be the Palestinian state. And the 78 that was Israel remains in Israel. Now, where that land is has to be negotiated. So the Israelis will expect, and most of the, and the Palestinians have agreed to this, that these gigantic Jewish settlements all along the old green line between the West Bank and Israel, where there are hundreds of thousands of settlers in... in 700,000. Yeah. Those will have to be incorporated into Israel. And... Israel will give the Palestinian state land of equal value, probably up in the Galilee and maybe down the south, we'll see. That'll have to be negotiated. A lot of the settlements in the interior of the West Bank or near the Jordan River will have to be evacuated. The Israelis will just have to uproot them and tell them, look, this is the cost of real peace. They did that before. They got settlers out of Sinai. They got settlers out of out of Gaza, yeah, in the early 2000s. Was back for the Oslo process, they were, I think, four or five settlers. So they can do that if they want. If I think only when, they, when the Israeli people and their leaders understand that they can actually get what they keep saying they want, which is to be recognized and, to, and for people, their neighbors, to live in peace with them and end the war with them. When they, if that's available, I think they will get these settlers... Uh, removed without any problem whatsoever. The majority of Israelis are not committed to the settlement process. But in the present conditions of heightened emotions, of course, they're, they're saying something like 85% or something of Israelis say they think that the attacks against Gaza are justified. Then Israel is not using too much force because they're completely out of their mind. They're so angry that they want revenge. They want blood. And this is human nature. Uh, many people act like this. The, the United States acted like this after 9-11. They just wanted to go and kill Muslims. Not all Americans, but, but the political system was enraged, and it acted in an enraged way. So that's a Palestinian state has to have Gaza, East Jerusalem, or much of it, and the West Bank. And I don't think these are going to be problems. I've been involved in enough Pac-2 meetings, informal meetings between Palestinians and Israelis, unofficial meetings to, to discuss how could we achieve these th this condition. There's been dozens and dozens of these meetings by very serious people, many of whom were former government officials. And it's clear, we have the outlines of a peace agreement very clear, and the Israelis have to make the fundamental decision that they will live in peace with a Palestinian state that has the same rights as the Israeli state does. The only area where the Palestinians have agreed to make a concession, and this is probably for a limited period of time, is that the Palestinian state would be demilitarized, uh, would not have an offensive army. And the Palestinians said, no problem. We're not, we're not here to take over other people or subjugate them like the Zionist movements of the Israeli government was. Uh, other than that, the, everything has to be of equal rights, and includes things like, if I was a Palestinian negotiator, if the Israelis said, we need a, a, an electronic monitoring station top of this mountain to make sure that no Palestinians are going to sneak up on us at night, I would tell them, fine, have your monitoring station. We want a monitoring station next to Hebrew University in Jerusalem to make sure that none of your crazies are going to come and attack us. It has to be reciprocal. Reciprocity is the key to progress to, to justice, to equal rights, and to peace. But, but that's interesting, though, because whilst you've ended by talking about reciprocity, actually there isn't asymmetry because you're conceding, and I think you're wise to, and any Palestinian negotiator will be wise to, to say that we won't have an army. We, will have, we won't even have a defence force. We'll have a souped-up 
police force and that's it. So it isn't reciprocity. And I think we all have to recognize, and, and I think what you said is also very wise, that Palestinian negotiators have recognized that the founding of the state of Israel was special in inverted commas. And this state has been attacked numerous times. In 1967, it attacked Egypt. So it's not all one-way traffic. By any such imagination, there has been the invasion of southern Lebanon in the 1980s, etc. But actually, even a Palestinian state, which Palestinians would agree to, is number one, giving up land, which, his, which international law says is Palestinian land, the 1967 borders and those Israeli settlements are actually illegal and a Palestinian state is going to give up having an army which out of the UN's what 195 countries I think all of them bar Costa Rica have an army of some sort and maybe Monaco and even the Vatican state has an army of sorts because I don't want to take up too much of everybody else's time because we do have a small but committed audience with us Andrea you said that you wanted to ask a question to Mr. Kaori. So, Andrew, now is your time. Thank you so much, Royfield, for this. And Dr. Corey, this has been one of the best sessions I've listened to on this topic. So I'm very grateful for your perspective and experience. Very quickly, I believe I know, but I'd rather hear from you clarified in the two-state solution, what happens to Hamas? Where are they in the picture? because originally they had as part of their mandate and they were elected by the Palestinian people to, I believe, destroy the state of Israel. And I'm hoping you'll correct me if I'm incorrect. But I believe they then removed that from their mandate. So that's what happens to Hamas. And then in your view, how what possible explanation could you give for how it is taking the U.S. so long. I know Israel is an ally, so there's complications about needing to back your ally, but to come down a bit harder on this situation when clearly it has gone beyond, it, it feels like even with Israel's right to defend itself, a disproportionate response. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you. I do bet. There's many reasons why the U.S. has taken this very severe, one-sided pro-Israeli position. There's about six or seven different dimensions of it, and they evolve a little bit over time. But it basically includes things like political leaders in the U.S. benefit when they are seen, usually feel they benefit when they are supporting a state that says it's the state of the Jewish people. They've, leaders feel they benefit when they are seen to be giving protection to the Jewish people who were grievously and criminally mistreated in Europe, but not just under Hitler, but white racist European and North American systems starting in the late 19th century. Uh, remember, Zionism started 40 years before Hitler. So uh, the, 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 the Holocaust speeded up the process of Jewish migration to Palestine and the, the urgent need to create a state where the Jews could live in peace. Because the Americans wouldn't take them. In Great Britain, you wouldn't take them. There were laws that were passed to pre prevent or slow down the immigration of Jews from Europe as early as 1910 in, in England, I think it was. In the U.S., it was in the 20s. And therefore, the state of Israel became a, a life or death imperative for Jewish people in Europe. And, and politicians have strongly supported uh, the state of Israel in the U.S. ever since. They think that it's a strategic ally. In some cases, having a close ally like that where you can free position military equipment and use their air, air bases and stuff like that, and their intelligence system helps them and the, helps the U.S. and them at least. The Israelis align themselves always with the West against the enemy, which was back then, I would say, the Soviet Union or the Russians, or the Soviet Union, the East, Eastern Bloc, the Cold War, Israel presented itself as a democratic ally of the West, whereas many Arabs were with the Soviets. There's many different reasons. Uh, there's also a, a strong streak of Christian fundamentalist extremism in the United States. And this was there in England. It's one of the reasons that the British and the Balfour Declaration happened in 19. 17, why British officials supported the creation 
of a, a Jewish state in Palestine at the same time as these same British leaders refused to allow legislation that would permit the Jews to come into England. They said, no, we don't want you to help you. We don't want you to come to our country. You go somewhere else. And uh, this Christian fundamentalist sentiment uh, has many different dimensions to it, but it, it came into play uh, and still does. So now you find that the American Christian fundamentalist extremists, not all of them, but the extremists are very pro-Israeli. And, uh, and this is a shift that's uh, happened uh, uh, over the years. Uh, so so um, and there's probably one or two, uh, uh, two other, uh, other reasons. What was your first question? I'm sorry, it was just what happens to Hamas in the two states. That's something that will be decided by the Palestinian people and in the negotiations with Israel. But let me give you one hint. Uh, this is what makes Hamas and people like Hezbollah and others like them, these resistance movements, this is what makes them different than everything people in the West have been used to in, in the Arab world. They won't tell you. you. You'll never get an answer to that question. They, because they learned. If they make concessions ahead of time, if they say, okay, we will demilitarize and we will become a, a social welfare agency, which is what they started as. Hezbollah and Hamas both started as social justice, social development agencies for their communities, schools, medical clinics, etc. If they were to make that concession early on, the Israelis would say, oh, wonderful, thank you very much, we'll take that, which is what they did with Arafat, with Oslo. They took the concessions that, that Arafat made and gave almost nothing back in return. But they kept colonizing and building settlements, killing Palestinians. Hamas will not tell you, will not accept, not you, but the Israelis' terms unilaterally and beforehand. These will be negotiated. But Hamas has clearly made it known through interviews, through their writings, through changing their charter, through many things. They are prepared to coexist in peace with the state of Israel as it is now, which is the majority Jewish, minority Arab. They're prepared to live in peace if the occupation from 67 is ended, if Israeli attacks against Palestinians are ended, and if the fundamental issues related to the Palestinian refugees are addressed. And that's the most complicated one. Uh, so there's about five, six million Palestinian refugees around the region that say they should go back to their homes and what is now Israel. That's not going to happen. The Israelis won't accept it, and we understand that. But there has to be some recognition of the rights of these Palestinians, which are in UN resolutions, by the way. And that's one of the reasons why UNRWA continues to exist, the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, which is a big controversy now. The Israelis have tried for years to get rid of UNRWA, but UNRWA was there because these Palestinian refugees in exile are seen to be members of a coherent community, the Palestinian community, who one day should have the right to go back to their homes. If they don't go back to their homes in Israel, then they'll go to a Palestinian state, some of them. But until then, somebody has to provide them with their basic needs, and, and that's what, what UNRWA, UNRWA does. So the issues of what happens when a Palestinian state is created to the leadership of Palestine, to Hamas, to other things? These will come out of the negotiations. The Palestinian people are unbelievably skilled and reasonable and able. They're not going to miss an opportunity to negotiate seriously for a resolution of their statelessness, disenfranchisement, and exile. They will work for their own rights and their own state. And they've accepted, and virtually everything that Israel has asked of the Palestinians, the Palestinians have accepted, including a demilitarized state and less land and this and that. So the real problem is in Israel and in the United States. The United States is starting to change now. They're, they're, they're looking at recognizing a Palestinian state. They're, they keep talking about, so again, this is important. When did Joe Biden start talking about a two-state solution? It was three for three weeks after Hamas invaded Israel on October 7th. Again, that's a consequence of this, this very dramatic but very controversial move. And if the Americans are serious about a two-state solution, they, they have to work for it and not just give us uh, empty talk. And it's the Israelis that are the main problem. They still have not fully accepted that the people of Palestine and the people of Israel actually should have equal rights under 
law, under God, and under diplomatic agreements. The, the, once the Israelis come around to recognizing, that will be a historic uh, moment because it will mean that they would finally, after 120 years, they would have finally defined what Zionism means in terms of its borders, its people, etc., etc. Zionism has never been defined other than a movement for national recreation of a state for the Jewish people. But it's been a colonial settler state that expands and takes Palestinian land and does what it's doing in in Gaza. But once you have a permanent agreement, Zionism will be defined and contained, and it will respond to what the Jews rightly asked for, and it will also respond to what the Palestinians asked for, which is not to have the Jewish state constantly uh, attacking us. That that does presuppose a, a massive change in Israeli internal politics, doesn't it? That those extreme right-wing parties, uh, which are led by people like Ben Gavir, and their kind of messianic uh, belief in from the river to the sea, quite literally, and that's what they say, that those parties need to be... These are relatively fringe parties, but they're propping up Likud, and it's those keeps uh, Netanyahu in power. But Netanyahu has always said from the 1970s that he doesn't want a two-state solution. So we need a massive change in internal Israeli politics. And considering how unpopular Netanyahu is, but and as you said, there is this understandable, almost bloodlust in terms of what was done was so unexpected, so terrible, that we just need to wipe out Hamas. But it's not inconceivable that Post the conflict, there's going to be a realignment is in Israeli internal politics, which could well get us to a place where Israelis who are in the centre are on the left. Really, do say that we need a settlement? That there is a solution cannot be to destroy seventy percent of the buildings in Gaza, because all that's doing is acting as a recruiting sergeant for more people who are implacably against the state of Israel. You're not winning over any hearts and minds doing that. Jim, you've raised your hands, and also for other people, because I do want to start to try and wind this up. We've had Mr. Corey for over an hour, so if you do want to ask a question, please raise your hand. But Jim, my good friend in Atlanta, the stage is yours. I'm Roy Field. Hi, Dr. Corey. Great podcast, as always. Just a couple, I'll I'll try to be... Uh, brief in my questions, Dr. Corey, do you think you spoke about 101 years? That sort of takes us back to the Balfour Declaration. Do you think the Balfour Declaration in and of itself is where things became exceedingly problematic and sideways? That's question one. Question two, early on, I thought I heard you say there's never been a Palestinian government capable of engaging the Israelis. Did I hear you correctly on that? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. So, is it possible to have a Palestinian government capable of engaging the Israelis? Now, I get what you're saying about going back to the pre-67 borders. And I get what Royfield says, that there has to be a, a huge political shift to get there. Is there a capable Palestinian government if there's if Netanyahu's government is gone and the fundamentalists are gone and hallelujah of what you said about the fundamentalist Christians in America and England preventing the Jews from coming because go, go, going back to the protocols of the elders of Zion those were and they are still in effect right they're still in effect going back to January 6th is there a capable government of Palestine to negotiate with a new government in Israel, is that is my question. Yeah, see, the protocols are a f- fabrication. You know that. They're not... Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so the uh, answer is absolutely the Palestinians can have a government that is able to uh, engage with the Israelis or any government in the world. The people, I don't know if you've been to Palestine or Palestinians, but there's just thousands of amazingly skilled, educated uh, mobile people, cultured, etc. So that's not a problem but if they're given a chance. The problem is every time that there has been a government, uh, it's, take, it's been able to concentrate power and 
not act democratically. There was a brief period after Oslo when there was elections for national council and things like that, and the parliament. And, and in fact, Hamas was elected, and they won an election. That's how they got to be to run the government before they had the West Bank and Gaza. But yeah, I have no, no problem, no, no concerns about that. The, we are a, perfectly capable of running ourselves. We don't have to have this nonsense, this orientalist, racist nonsense that we get out of Europe and North America and Israel where, oh, the Palestinians need somebody to come and help them uh, run their society. The first point you mentioned, yes, the Balfour Declaration was the, was the critical turning point, which was preceded, though, by acts of great dishonesty by the British colonial government, which is typical of governments and certainly typical of the British colonial government, where they promised the Arabs something and they promised the Israelis something, and then they reneged on the promise to the Arabs. And that was the McMahon pledge. Yeah. But uh, just for historical accuracy, there were no Israelis back then at the end of the First World War. So go to YouTube. Uh, so yeah, Alcor Declaration was the what brought the Zionist movement into the international legal system. And then the mandates with the League of Nations gave it the force of law. If you look at the mandate of 22, decided in 22, implemented in 1923, you read it. It's a very short document, about 10 pages. It's amazing. It's, a, it's like it was written, and parts of it probably were, by the Zionist movement, which is exactly what's in the Balfour Declaration. And they, they say the mandate is to do this and that and make sure that a Jewish home, a national home, is established. And this is what happened. And we couldn't confront these. We didn't have the skills or the means or the connections to confront these people. But the amazing thing about Palestine, and we should end here, is that the Palestinians are really quite unusual for continuing their struggle over a century because even when in the earliest days when this started to happen, Palestinians were, some of them were wondering, what's going on here? Are they going to come and try to take our state, take our rights away? There was no state then. But, but we, for a century, we've struggled for our rights. And we're still struggling against tremendous odds. And, but it seems, and I'm 75 years old, I was born in 1948. So I've lived, this has been my whole life. But it seems to me that this year, the, uh, is the turning point uh, 2020? So just to jump in, because I, I I don't know wrap this up. I find that fascinating and somewhat surprising. So after the Oslo Accords, were you not? Do, does this feel more promising than the mid 90s when Yasser Arafat sat down with Yitzhak Rabin? That sh- sh- surely that that was the time when we all thought that this conflict. That's in- right. A lot of people were hopeful then. But a lot of people were against it, and it wasn't clear it was going to work, and it didn't work, because the Israelis were not serious. But this is something serious. Thank you, Professor Khoury. If people want to maybe catch up with you on social media and or any of your writings, where can they do that, sir? Well, on Twitter, and it's at Rami Khoury, one word. I know. Absolutely. There you go. Super simple. I will continue to do these uh, deep dives with uh, key thinkers around the Israel and Palestinian issue uh, for as long as this conflict continues. Obviously, Mid-Atlantic's bread and butter is to look at US and UK news and views. But I am a, a committed person who's fascinated by the world of geopolitics. Really, my love ultimately is history. I think through the darkness and the brutality of the attack on southern Israel on the 7th of October, I think I do agree with Mr. Corey that actually we can now start to see light at the end of the tunnel for the Palestinian peoples that they can have their, their own land and live in some level of security. And we can see that because Western governments are slowly but surely coming to recognize their case. Again, you don't have to be anti-Israeli to understand and empathize with the Palestinian people and the statelessness at all. And it's a a cause which I've always felt incredibly passionate about since the age of 9, 10, when I got that first book, 
the Israeli people need their own land and need security, but not at the expense of the Palestinian people. The two peoples can live side by side, as actually Jews and Muslims did in that land for eons, for literally 2,000 years since the Romans expelled the Jewish people in the first century AD. I've been Royfield Brown. This has been Mid-Atlantic. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.